Hello everyone and welcome to uh, episode 12 of the Cinephile Diaries, which, you know, might be due for a name change because we're going to talk about a lot of TV today. Um, we're going to talk, we're going to talk about some movies too, and I'm very excited to talk about the movies that we're going to talk about, but this has been this year for TV. Like I, I said last week that, uh, that it felt kind of felt like this year was a bad year to start a movie podcast. And I kind of like, I kind of don't know if I think that's true anymore, just because saw a movie this week that, 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 that kind of makes the whole year worth it um but it's been a really really good year for tv so i i do just want to highlight a i have three because i'm starting another weekly review series this week and then i want to talk about daisy jones and the six again i want to talk about shrinking again so i mean there's a lot to talk about so let's just jump straight into it Okay, so I want to start this episode with uh, with the newest addition to the weekly reviews, and that is Yellow Jackets on Showtime. Um, this show is a little bit difficult to pitch because it's I like I kind of clicked watching the premiere. This is the season two premiere. Um, it kind of clicked watching the premiere. This is like Lost meets Lord of the Flies. It's it starts with like this volley this volleyball team in the 90s which is kind of loosely based on a true story this volleyball team that crash landed in the the Alaskan wilderness or the Canadian wilderness and was trapped for like 6 months um and during that time some stuff started to go down that involved mushrooms and cannibalism and cults and um it's such a great show. Like, it's so... It's it's kind of campy. Like, I, I, it really clicked what... Like, I had forgotten that. One of the things you really need to go know going into Yellow Jackets, this show is, like, really campy. When I watched season one, it was right after I had watched a show called Severance that's on Apple TV+. Plus. That was my favorite show of last year. Because um, I was late to the Yellow Jackets party. I didn't watch Yellow Jackets till like, two or three months after the season had ended. Um, and Severance was, like, very mature, very, like, it really, that story really pulled me in, um, and really, like, scratched an itch in my brain, and it made me think, and, like, got the neurons firing, and to some extent, Yellow Jackets does that, but it's not as, like, mature and sophisticated as Severance was. Yellow Jackets is, uh much more of of just like good solid it's kind of, it's like a 70s horror movie um good solid campy there's a really really interesting mystery cuz it flashes back between the volleyball team the survivors of the volleyball team as adults it flashes between them as adults and them as children like them in the wilderness um and each one of them has some kind of, like, secret or some kind of, like, issue. Um, like, the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spoil season one. I'm going to try not to spoil the premiere, but I'm going to spoil season one. One of the characters sleepwalks, and while she sleepwalks, she turns into, like, a vampire, <laughs> basically. 
<laughs> like she like she she turns into a monster. Um at like so like it's not it's not the smartest show in the world, but it is really, 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 really fun to watch. Also, just the cast, Melanie Linsky, who was, I think I talked about the fact that Melanie Linsky was in the Yellow Jackets when she was in The Last of Us, um, who, I just got to talk about this because I didn't realize it, uh, I didn't know Melanie Linsky was New Zealand, New Zealand, was a New, was a New Zealander, uh, threw me for a loop when I heard her talking in an interview, because, like, her American accent, especially in, like, The Last of Us, and to some extent here, is so, like, Midwestern, middle, Midwestern housewife scary. I don't know if that makes any sense. But I heard someone compare her in The Last of Us to, like, the villain of that show is your best friend's mom. She, and, yeah, she's like your best friend's mom. That's what makes her so scary, because she's a... She's a, uh... She's just a normal lady who's freaking terrifying. Um, and that, like, that's also true in Yellow Jackets. But, like, yeah, Yellow, uh, unpacking all of these characters' secrets has kind of been the fun of Yellow Jackets. There's a twist in the very last episode of Season 1 that a certain character who was alive in the flashbacks but we hadn't met yet is still alive. Um, yeah, so the premiere. Let's talk about the premiere itself. This premiere is really good. Like, it took a bit of adjusting to get back in the zone of, like, oh, yeah, this show's kind of cheesy. But, like, it's really good. It leans into the wackiness a little bit. It leans into the horror a little bit. Um, just the development of all these characters. And, like, because we know, we know, and because, like, we're in the future, we know in the future that some cannibalism happened. But the cannibalism hasn't happened in the flashbacks yet. So getting to like build up to that and see what led to that. Because, well, I mean, actually, cannibalism kind of has happened. Because the first episode opens with one of the girls running through the, running through the woods in the snow. And she falls into a trap that has spikes at the bottom and dies. And then the rest of the team eats her. But everyone on the team that eats her has a mask on, and it happened. This happens like later on in the flashbacks. We haven't caught up to it yet. Everyone on the team has a mask on, so you don't know who the leader is. And then one of them takes off their mask, because um, because Misty, the character that takes off their mask, is Misty, played by Christina Ricci, who's awesome. Um, she's like she's like Grima Wormtongue. Not Grima Wormtongue. I mean, yes, Grima Wormtongue. But she's like Wormtail from Harry Potter. She's just looking for power. <laughs> she's awesome. And she's a great character. And, like, early on in the series, she does some stuff that, like, woo, she's awesome. Um, I don't know if I'm selling this show properly. It's really good. It's a really, really good show. Um, it's really funny, but also, like, kind of scary. I remember getting chills at certain points in season one. Um... Yeah, it's on it's on Showtime. I I I feel like I feel like I have all of the niche streaming services and haven't and like haven't talked about a Netflix show and maybe I don't know if I've ever talked about a Netflix show on this on this podcast, but yeah, if you want to spend more money to get another streaming service, <laughs> Yellow Jackets on Paramount Plus and Showtime is actually a really really good show and I can't wait to keep talking about it. Um yeah.
I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying the season so far. I know we're only an episode in, but all of these characters are awesome. Guy who character who doesn't get enough credit, Melanie Linsky's husband is hilarious and their relationship he's a ride or die man he's a he's a legend um but yeah uh this is a this is a show that uh you should be watching because more people should be watching it because it's a blast um yeah on to the next one i can't remember what order i was doing these in so i'm going to talk about uh ted lasso season three episode Two? I think we're on episode two? I believe we're on episode two. I remember what the episode is, I just don't remember if it's episode two or three. Um, I, it's episode two. It's episode two, yeah. Uh, but we're going to talk about season three, episode two of Ted Lasso. Um, once again, it's awesome. The fact that, like, there's a, there's a mystery with a character that's just as interesting as anything that's happening in, like, Yellow Jackets. But it's a very character-centric mystery of, like, why did Roy break up with Keeley? Spoilers for episode one. Um... And also, I guess, spoilers for this episode, because the reveal that he broke up with her is a reveal in and of itself. Um, and then, like, everything with Rebecca finally revealing why um, why she fell in love with uh, Rupert, who's the villain of the show. Why she fell in love with Rupert in the first place. Um, yeah. And, and, like... So, I this is the first time watching this show that I have been, like, a part of the conversation. Because when I started watching the show, season one was out, and I believe we were on, like, season two was, like, halfway over when I started it. Um, so I never really got to be a part of the week-to-week discussion on Ted Lasso. So I always kind of had my theories and had my ideas in a vacuum. Getting to get those ideas validated now is really, is really nice the fact that every, everybody thinks Rebecca and Ted are going to end up together, which I thought was something I was just kind of pipe dreaming about. Um, yeah, that's really nice. But also now that we know that Rupert, Rupert convinced Rebecca to marry him, basically because he did exactly what Ted is doing. He was persistent. He kept showing up. He was consistent. But then it turns out that Rupert was just evil. Ted is not just evil. So the fact that you get to see why Rebecca's maybe really scared to to embrace Ted, to embrace her feelings for Ted, um, the fact that you get to see that now is really fascinating to me. Um, and I mean, it, it's this show is a lot about healing trauma and moving forward, uh, moving forward from your past, especially like from season two, um, and. So the fact that the fact that Ted gets to do that for this woman who like literally starts the show extremely angry and bitter from this divorce and has spent the entire show healing thanks to Ted and now she gets to do that final bit of healing and maybe kiss Ted a little bit you know it's nice it's a nice it's a nice change of face um yeah this I mean I don't really have that much to say about this episode it continues to be Maybe my favorite show. I think so far, like, this year, I still prefer Shrinking. But but that's hard That's hard to, like... That's hard to judge when we're two episodes into this show and we've had ten episodes of Shrinking. Um, I, I also love the fact that Trent Krim is writing a book. Because Trent Krim getting 
losing his job at the end of last season because he revealed a source. Trent Krem is a reporter. Um, um, Trent, uh, but like the reveal that he, uh, or not the reveal, but the fact that he's writing a book and Roy hates him because that, of course, they have a past, and Ted gets to heal that relationship. I just love this show, man. I just love, you know, everybody. everybody's going through something, including me. <laughs> and the fact that we have this little show that's, that's disguised as a sports show, but at its core is all about healing and all about growing through trauma and garbage. It's just beautiful. It's just wonderful. And I, I love it so much. Um, was there, did we, yes, there was Keely, Keely was in this episode, she was just not, like, a main player, I almost forgot Keely was in this episode, also, just, like, the main plot of them trying to attract a player at Richmond, uh, because they're trying to attract a player who's supposedly a diva and an asshole, and, um, I, I when when I when I heard that this that this character also side tangent this is maybe the funniest episode of the show in a minute there's so many jokes beards screams so funny um yeah there's so much there's so much about this episode that's really funny but the fact that like they're trying to attract this player who's a diva and not not like not a very good team player I literally got giddy when they said that because now Ted gets to fix him. Not fix him, but Ted gets to help him. Ted gets to make him better. Ted gets to make him a team player. The same way he did with Jamie. The same way he did with Sam. The same way he did with Roy. Ugh, I love this show. And it's such a different show from Yellow Jackets. It's such a different show from The Last of Us. But it's it's just a show about healing and growing through your your you're growing instead of just going through your crap, you're growing through your crap. I should be writer for Hallmark, damn it. Um But yeah, it's it's a wonderful show. And uh it, it'll make it'll it will make your day better, I promise. Um Yeah, that's that's my take on Ted Lasso season three, episode two. Um very excited for the rest of the season. Very excited to see where it goes. Not so excited about the fact that I'm probably going to cry about it a lot. Especially since this is the final season. I'm so not ready to say goodbye. But that's that's a story for another day. As for right now, another really, really great episode of Ted Lasso. Um, yeah. Uh, what's my next show? Mandalorian. I am so excited to talk about Mandalorian because I have so much to say about this week. Let's jump into that. The Mandalorian season three, episode four. We're in episode four now. Um, this is one of the most. That was the most incredible voice crack I've ever heard. This is one of the most interesting episodes of TV I've seen in a minute. Um, it it felt. And I mean this in both a good way and a bad way. It felt directed by George Lucas. Um, it like the way it was paced, the way characters talk to each other, the way 
it was shot, the way scenes played out, felt um, felt like a new hope to me. Um, but also, like, yeah, some of the dialogue felt extremely stiff. Uh, some of the, uh, um, some of the editing was just very weird and very choppy. The way scenes would play out would be very choppy. Um, it felt like an episode of a Western TV show from, like, the 70s. Or, like, the, it felt like I was watching, like, The Lone Ranger or, uh, Wagon Train. Which, once again, is a thing that, 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 like, I'm one of the only people on the planet that's gonna have nostalgia for something like that. Um, so I actually did come away really enjoying this episode. Um, uh, like, the Western aspects were really cool. Um, but it, it, it felt very weird and a little bit jarring. Also, like, not for nothing, but the character of Din Djarin, the Mandalorian's not really in this episode that much. He has, like, two or three lines. Um, which is fine, because we get, like, we get a bunch of great character development for Grogu, and we get a bunch of great character development for, uh, Bo-Katan in this episode. So, like, I don't think this was filler, um, but I do, I do think to some extent, I wish I, I wish we had a more clear idea of where the season is going. Like, I assume the Mythosaur thing is gonna happen at the end of this season. Um, and there's a bunch of people on Twitter who were talking about how the season has no momentum and doesn't have any, like, clear direction. And I don't think that's true. I think this, I think this episode, I think this season has very clear direction. We're very clearly leading towards a Mythosaur. Um... And I think the I think the reason Bo-Katan has kind of stepped into the Children of the Watch is because Bo-Katan, if because I think they're setting up Bo-Katan to actually be the next Mandalore. Um, Bo-Katan needs to learn to love all of the Mandalorians, even the ones she doesn't do, she doesn't really agree with. Um, so maybe that's why they have her in the Watch. Also, the fact that she gets it in this episode, we get to see the Watch as, like, a positive ideology. It's still negative, like, it's still a cult, but we get to see the Watch as, uh, as a, as a group of people that, like, want to save kids, and even a monster kidnaps a kid, but that monster kidnapped the kid to feed its family. So when they kill the monster and save the kid, they also bring the monster's babies back to, to the covert with them. Um, like, so that, I mean, I thought that was cool. Um, also, I haven't even talked about the biggest thing yet. We know who rescued Grogu from the Jedi Temple. And it's the coolest answer ever. Back in 2020, there was a children's TV show called Jedi Temple Challenge, created and starring Ahmed Best. Ahmed Best is the actor who played Jar Jar Binks, who you know, got a bunch of hate for that character, <clears throat> and, uh, like, like, got really low and almost, almost, uh, uh, dip, made some decisions he would have regretted. Um, so, and then, like, over the last couple of years, he's, he's kind of been welcomed back to the Star Wars family. And in this episode, uh, in, in Jedi Temple Challenge, his character's name, the canonical 
the canonical aspects of Jedi Temple Ta- Challenge was his character, Kelleran Beck, the sabered hand, who helped younglings. Um, and now, in this episode, Kelleran Beck, the sabered hand, saves Grogu. That is so cool. And, like, speaking of things that felt directed by George Lucas, that felt exactly like the prequels. Tamura Morrison, direct, like, voicing the clones... The way they, the way it was shot, the like, it felt exactly like it was straight out of the prequels. Um, yeah, very cool. Uh, one of these days, because I, I, I watch a lot of fan edits. Somebody needs to like take all of Star Wars media and edit it together into like one thing, one like one story. That would be, I, nobody would watch it, but I would, I would watch it. That would be cool. Um, one chronological story. That would be that would be really interesting. It would be like 25, 26 hours long, but it would be that would be really fun, really interesting. Uh, and I mean, you, I would, I would say even edit in the animated stuff just for fun. Because um, I mean, with if you don't have the animated stuff, you don't get. The, you don't get a lot of the Force lore that's in Star Wars. You don't get the world between worlds. You don't get the gods of Mortis. Um, but yeah. Anyway, this episode, this episode, while while a little bit strange, this episode was a little bit strange to me. Uh, it was very good, very fun. Watching Ahmed Best come back was awesome. Watching like watching Grogu start being like a like a Yoda, like a Yoda type dude, really cool. Like watching him actually like get into some action and, you know, shoot some darts at people. It was re- it was good. Um Yeah, there's a lot of things I loved about this episode, but it was it was definitely a strange watch and probably my least favorite episode of the season so far. Um but yeah, I I still I'm still thoroughly enjoying the show. I love the fact that I get to watch this and Ted Lasso at the same time. Um, yeah, my definitely very much my jam. Cannot wait for next week. Cannot wait for everything this season has in store. Um, yeah, that's my take on Mando season three, episode four. Love it so far. So, last week, I talked for way too long about a miniseries in a book called Daisy Jones and the Six. But I decided I wanted to do that again. So, because um, we had the we had the end of the sh- we had the end of the miniseries this week, and I also finished the book. Um, I it's weird because like I was thoroughly enjoying the book, and I but I but I remember but I think I said last week that I thought the show was better than the book so far. Little did I know that I I was basically caught up. I was like I was with the show. I was like I was up to the point that the show was at when I recorded last week. So I hadn't so I hadn't read the ending of the book and I hadn't seen the ending of the show. The ending of the book is where the book really really comes alive because there's a twist about there's a couple of twists, but there's a twist about the 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 author of the book because it's a fictionalized book about a fictionalized band that's, like, being researched. Who the researcher is becomes incredibly important, and it fl- and it flips the entire book on its head. And, like, I had even had it spoiled that this was coming, but 
actually seeing it executed uh, genuinely flips the entire book on its head. Because one of the reasons that uh, one of the reasons I was I was kind of wrestling with the book is because the character of Billy felt like a conservative dad, which is not who Billy was in the sh- in the show at all. And then you get the reveal that the 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 author, the researcher, the narrator is Billy's daughter. So of course he's of course he's like a conservative dad because he doesn't he doesn't want to completely open up to his daughter. Um, he doesn't he doesn't want he he just doesn't want his daughter to know how kind of bad of a person he was. Cause and I mean I love Billy. Billy's awesome, but he's he he he's not a perfect person. And I think he tries really hard for a lot of the period of for a lot of the for a lot of time in this book to to make himself seem better for Julia for his daughter. Um, whereas some whereas some of the other characters kind of tell it more like it is and tell it tell like tell you the way Billy actually was um but yeah uh that was man and then and then like there's there's a couple of scenes in the like the the SNL performance in the book ripped my heart out from like the SNL performance on this book is freaking perfect um and the show a, like, the show doesn't even really do the SNL performance. Like, they do it, but they kind of brush over it and go on to something else that wasn't in the book. And, I mean, what they go on to is good. Um, it, it's weird. I think the show... I think the show made all the right choices in adaptation. Because um, the SNL performance in the book probably wouldn't work as well in on screen... And the way Billy and Daisy at the way Billy and Daisy's relationship comes to a head probably wouldn't work as well on screen. So I think the show made all of the right decisions in adaptation. But now having finished both of them, I I prefer the decisions in the book. I prefer the on I prefer what was on the page. Um <clears throat> Like there's like and then, and then there's just, there's a couple of scenes, and I'm like, why was that not there? Why, like, why did you not have that? There's a conversation that Camila, Billy's wife, has with Daisy, that is like the catalyst for the ending, the catalyst for why, after this performance in 1977 or 79, whichever one you want, whichever one you want to use, after this performance, Daisy Jones and the Six never performed again, and the catalyst in the show and the book is different. And I don't, I really, really wish the scene in the book was in the show. Because Camila just telling Daisy, uh, all, like, telling, not even telling her off, but just having this conversation of, Billy is never going to leave me. And I'm, and I'm going to fight for him. And I'm going to fight for you. You need help. You need to go to rehab. You need to figure yourself out. Um, I'm, she says I'm rooting for you, Daisy. Ugh! Angsty romance, y'all. I freaking love angsty romance so freaking much, dude. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, 
I really wish that that scene was in the book. And the other scene that I wish was in the book happens concurrently with that scene, like they cut back and forth. It's Billy at the bar. Billy goes to a bar. He's been sober for, you know, four or five years at this point. And he goes to a bar, and he's about to get a drink. And he starts talking to this guy. And the guy starts off hostile. The guy starts off with, what do you have to be worried about? You're famous and rich. What do you have to be sad about? And then as it develops, the guy, the guy, as like the guy starts to like read the room and realize that Billy's in a really bad place, um, Billy has ordered a tequila, and um, Billy like Billy he the guy gets Billy talking, and then the guy asks Billy to see pictures of his kids. Like he asks him if he has kids, and he asks to see pictures of his kids. And while Billy is digging in his wallet to get this picture out, uh, the guy grabs the tequila from in front of Billy and just moves it to the other side of the bar. It's little shit like that 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 just kills me. And that wasn't in the show. Um, yeah, I, it's just this thing where, like, I do think the show made all the right decisions in adaptation. I've said that, like, three times. But... The subtlety and the simplicity of the book. In the book, Billy and Daisy kiss like half a time. They almost kiss one time. In the show, by the by the end of it, they're like making out, which is fine. Like it work it works perfectly fine for the show. Um, but the subtlety of understanding how powerful that relationship was without that relationship ever becoming physical, without that relationship ever becoming real, understanding how powerful it was without it ever actually becoming a thing was so awesome, was so cool, so, like, heart-wrenching. And, yeah. And then I, I mentioned my theory as to why they changed the dates. I think I was I was completely wrong. Um, I mean that you do get like a scene where Billy and Daisy come back together at the end of the show, twenty years later, because oh, spoiler alert, Camila has died in the twenty years convening, in the twenty years between the the last concert and the show and like the actual interviews. Um, yeah, but she, I mean she died she died in the book too. Um, but yeah. Oh, this that this kind of you know consumed my life. It's like it, and it was such a good show. It was such a good show. I think it got a little bit too rom coming because I haven't even talked about the 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 final performance because the final performance in the book, everyone has kind of reached a breaking point. Graham and uh, I almost said Suki because that's the name of the actress. Graham and Karen have kind of reached a breaking point in their relationship, and they're basically done. Um, <clears throat> and Billy has reached a breaking point, and Daisy has reached a breaking point, and, uh, that, okay, so I gotta, I got like, backtrack a shit ton, and this is gonna, once again, be the longest segment on the show. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Daisy, so, so originally, Billy wrote a song called Honeycomb, and he wrote it as this, 
like dream of the life he wanted to live with Camila. And then Daisy heard it and kind of rewrote it at, to have more of a conversation, like a like to be more of like an argument with his self about whether or not that life was possible, whether or not he was capable of living that life. Um and that like that was how they started. That that was the song that made Daisy Jones and the Six Daisy Jones and the Six. Um and then in this final performance at Chicago Stadium in the book, uh they go to sing it. And Daisy and Billy, who Daisy knows is at a breaking point, Daisy knows is is in a lot of pain, starts singing it the way he originally wrote it. Telling him that like and it it's so powerful to me for Daisy, who's still struggling through her addiction. She's not sober. Um still struggling through her addiction, to tell him that she believes in him. To tell him that she believes he's capable of this life. That he wants to live. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's so amazing. Um, and that's not in the book. They start singing Honeycomb, but because the rewrite, the rewrite was in the show, but it wasn't, it was kind of brushed over. Um, the re, but they start singing Honeycomb, and then Daisy tells Billy to go chase after Camila, and da- and Billy runs off stage, and they just become Daisy Jones and the Five, and they sing the song, and then after that, the band breaks up, um, it, it felt a little bit rom com and a little bit written, whereas the book felt like real people. It felt real. Like, uh, like they're not a real band, but it felt like even everything down to Camila dying in the interview, because it's 40 years, everything down to Camila getting sick and passing away um, felt real, felt like it could really happen. Um... So yeah, this is one of my favorite books ever now, and it's it's a really, really, really incredible miniseries uh, on Amazon Prime. I don't know if I've said that in 22 minutes of talking about this show between the last two episodes. <laughs> I don't know if I've said that, but it's on Amazon Prime. I would absolutely recommend it if you're into angsty romance. We're going to talk about a lot more angsty romance today. Um, But yeah, that's my take on Daisy Jones and the Six. It's a really, 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 really good show and a really, 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 really good book. And I think you should go read it and watch it. Or I listen to it. The audiobook is incredible. The voice talent, because they have a full voice cast. The voice cast is incredible. Um, Yeah, I I I would recommend... I would recommend this. And I like I know it's not going to be for everyone cuz not everyone likes being depressed by love, but I mean, if that sounds like your thing, I think you'll really like this show and I would recommend it. I'm going to try and keep this brief just because I talked about one show for almost 13 minutes back there, but I just want to take this one last opportunity to really implore you to go watch Shrinking on Apple TV+. Um, I have always been excited for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I have always been excited for Indy 5 because Harrison Ford was excited about it. But there was also always this nagging... um, This nagging voice in the back of my head that said that Harrison Ford didn't quite have the chops anymore... That he wasn't, like, that he was not, that he just didn't have a great performance left in him. 
Um, shrinking took those fears and threw it out the window. Her Paul Paul Rhodes in Shrinking, Harrison Ford's character, is not like it's not Han Solo, it's not Indiana Jones, but I think it's a top five Harrison Ford performance, and I think it's his funniest work ever. I had no idea Harrison Ford was this funny. Um, everything from there's a joke in the last there, it's a recurring joke in the last couple episodes about Harrison about his character discovering Fun Dip. That is one of the funny. That is one of the funniest things. His line delivery of good shit is one of the funniest things ever. There's a scene, and I want to say episode six or seven, where uh, there, 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 there's a peacock involved, and Harrison Ford, Jason Segel, and this other guy are talking about like, does it want to fight us? And here, like, because it spreads its feathers and Harrison Ford goes it either wants to fight us or it wants to fuck us and then Harrison and then Jason Siegel and the other guy are talking about it while Harrison Ford is just standing there and then Harrison Ford throws his hands up screams and the peacock runs away and then Harrison Ford goes I got bored it, it's so funny in that same episode um, there's a moment where Jason Siegel's daughter character's daughter is with a college guy and that like that that's when they fight the peacock is when Harrison Ford, Jason Siegel and the other guy are there um <clears throat> are there to get are there to get his underage daughter um a j funny Jason Siegel moment <laughs> um cuz uh the 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 other guy who's a lawyer comes in and goes did you know she was a minor and then the college guy turns to Jason Siegel's daughter and goes, you said you were 18. And Jason Siegel goes, yeah. Jason Siegel, like Jason Siegel, goes, yeah, well, she's 12. Just such a random line that's really funny to me. Um, it's hard. It feels weird explaining jokes. Like, explaining why you should watch the show because jokes. Because jokes aren't funny when you explain them. If you want to laugh at these jokes, go watch the freaking show. Um, but there's another, like, in that same scene... As they're leaving, Harrison Ford is just standing there staring at this college kid. The other two guys have left, and Jason Segel goes, Are you coming? And Harrison Ford is like, I'm not done intimidating him yet. And then the college kid, like, stares at him for a second, and then gulps. Like, does, this, does the nervous swallow thing. And Harrison Ford goes, There we go. And walks out. It's so funny. There's a scene where Harrison Ford sings in this show. Like, genuinely, like... He's, he's writing to work with a co-worker, and he's like, you better play that song that I like. And then it cuts to him and the co-worker singing that song at the top of their lungs. Um, 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 there's, a, there's an episode where Harrison Ford gets high. I don't know what more you want. This show's so funny. But also, like, it has the Ted Lasso thing, where it's just a show about healing. It's a show about, you know, whatever you're going through getting through it and growing through it and helping yourself and using your own pain to help others. Um, in every episode, there is both at least one, to me, there is at least one laugh-out-loud funny moment, and there's one tear-jerking, heartbreaking moment. Like, and any show that can do that is a brilliant piece of work in my book. Um, yeah, Shrinking is awesome.
and you should go watch it because I I don't know it's my favorite show of the year so far um it's awesome and you should go watch it I love shrinking so much um and and now now I'm like secure in the fact that I think Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is gonna be freaking awesome um but yeah go watch go watch shrinking it's amazing and I love it so much and I wish more people watched it I'm telling y'all I'm telling y'all I'm gonna keep saying it Apple TV Plus is the most quality, consistent streaming service. Severance was my favorite show of last year, which is an Apple TV Plus show. Um, Shrinking, my favorite show of this year so far, which is an Apple TV Plus show. The biggest competition for my favorite show of the year is Ted Lasso, which is an Apple TV Plus show. The best picture winner from 2021 was a film called Coda. That's an Apple TV Plus movie. Um... There's another show on there that I started but haven't finished yet called Hello Tomorrow. I think it's called Hello Tomorrow. That's really interesting, and it's an Apple TV Plus show. Um, there's one of my favorite documentaries called Boy State. is an Apple TV Plus documentary. Um, one of one of Harris, one of Tom Hanks's best performances, or not best, but Tom Hanks has a movie on Apple TV Plus where he it's like set in like a post-apocalypse, and he builds and he and Tom Hanks is like dying. So he builds a robot that can take care of his dog. Go get Apple TV Plus. It's only like five bucks a month. It's and it's amazing. It's absolutely worth it. Um, yeah. Sorry, I'm yelling. I'm yelling into the void again. Um, I think is I think that's all the TV I wanted to talk about. Let's actually talk about some movies now, because this is called the Cinephile Diaries, not the TV File Diaries. Is TV File the word for it? I don't know, but let's talk about it. So, keeping with the theme of angsty romance and 70s rock and roll, Almost Famous. Um, yeah, this is this is a really good show, honestly, or a really good movie. Um, I didn't... Okay, so Almost Famous is the story, is the true story. Uh, like, it's a, it's a writer-director's autobiography, basically. Um, about this guy, about this guy who like got an opportunity to write an article for Rolling Stone about a band. I don't, I haven't researched how much of it's true, or what. Like, I don't know if I don't know if the band in the movie is actually real. I don't know if Penny Lane's a real person. Um, but yeah, this is like this is apparently like a classic. It's a it's kind of, like people I've heard people call it a masterpiece. Um, and I and I think it's good. Like I didn't it didn't blow me away. Um. Maybe it wasn't angsty enough. I don't know. It didn't. It didn't blow me away the way I was kind of hoping that it would. It didn't blow me the way. It didn't blow me away the way Daisy Jones did. Um, yeah, that that like, and Daisy Jones has a happy ending. I like. I'm. I kind of feel like a part of my problem was this movie doesn't. This movie has too much of a happy ending. But the, I mean, the ending is really good. The fact that like the final interview with the, I don't remember his name, but the the lead guitarist of the band um like that like that's a really cool moment um but yeah i just i because one of the things that i'm really obsessed with right now is broken people using their pain to make something that helps other people and like letting the art be a conduit through them i don't know what i'm saying but like i'm really i'm really obsessed with stories like that right now 
and that I mean that's once again exactly what this is. But it ta- but it, like it takes three different perspectives on it. It takes the fan, the fans. Oh my god! <laughs> it takes the fans who I just I just had a realization about about like because the the poster is Penny Lane with red sunglasses on, looking at the band. Um, so it ta- you have the fan perspective, which has road- rose-colored glasses. Ah, ah, ah. But, like, Penny Lane spends most of the movie wearing red uh, sunglasses. Um, who's the fan? She's the Band-Aid, the roadie. Um, they have rose-colored sunglasses, and they view love, like, love and sex and relationships a certain way. Um, and they just think everything is okay. Um, and then you have the band... Who were the people who were using? Who were like the object of that affection? Who who were like the 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 aspiration of using your brokenness to help other people? Um, and then you also have uh, the journalist, who's the truth, um, who re- who like represents the actual truth of the thing. Um, Gosh, the more I think about it, the more I actually like it. I might actually go up a half star. I give it four stars, but I might actually go up a half star the more I think about it. Um, but yeah, like you have the fans who are the rose-colored glasses who like represent represent like the the public perception of the thing. You have the thing itself, which is the band and the art and the music. And the lifestyle, the circus, as the film calls it, the lifestyle of being a rock and roller, and then you have the uh, the the kid, the the uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, the reporter, who's just a kid who like got this opportunity to arrive for Rolling Stone and got like free money to basically travel with this band and go off to the circus for a few weeks, um, and it's. I don't know, it, and it ends up, it ends up saying that like we're all human. We're all human. The rose-colored glasses are kind of pointless. Um, all of us are just broken people trying to fix a broken world. Because I don't think Penny Lane, who's like the lead roadie, I don't know if I've explained that very well. I don't know if I explain anything very well in this podcast, to be completely honest with you. Um, but I mean, I've heard that some people really enjoy listening, so. I mean that's that's nice, um, but the 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 uh, gosh I'm saying oh, a lot, um, and I don't edit the show, which means you're gonna hear a lot of these us. But I don't know, maybe I, maybe I'm making it funny, um, maybe, um, but but almost famous. Um, this I think I think to some extent this is what Daisy Jones was about. I'm I'm like trying to figure out what this movie was about like live on the show. Um but understanding that going to the circus and getting famous is an opportunity to use your brokenness without ever addressing your brokenness. Um the, the uh this is this is turning into like a really deep therapy session. Uh yeah, I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, um but de- like yeah. So, I think to some 
yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Quality, quality. I also, I haven't, I haven't talked about it at all. Trying to get my, trying to like get my head back on straight and actually start talking about saying words that are intelligible and actually make any sense. Um, I love the way this movie was shot. I love the colors. I love like everything about it. I love the performances. Like Francis McDormand is awesome. I love Francis McDormand so much. And this is one of, this might be one of my favorite performances of hers. Um, his sister's really cool. Um, the fact that Jason Lee is in this. Also, I, I haven't mentioned it yet because I was too busy therapizing myself over what the movie actually means. But Jennifer Hudson as Penny Lane is another really, really attractive character in movies. I'm just going to say. I will just say. But, like, it's also, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of Manic Pixie Dream Girls, which I haven't done a lot of research on, and I need to. But basically these characters who, like, represent an ideal, represent, like, a life that you want, and then they disappear. Um, among the Manic Pacey Dream Girls, Penny Lane is Penny Lane is very much one. But by the end of this movie, Penny, Penny isn't just, like, Penny kind of gets stripped down. Not like, not like that, but... Penny kind of gets stripped down to a human, like, a human character, and you actually get to see the real her a little bit in a, in a way that you don't get with many Pixie Dream Girls a lot. Um, but yeah, Almost Famous is really, really good. I think I'm going to actually go up a half star. Um, yeah, this is a really, really good movie, um, and I would recommend it. Honestly, it's it's really solid. Um I don't. I don't know if I would go to so far as to say masterpiece, but the more I think about it, the more I like it. It's a really, really, really good movie. Um, yeah, if you, especially if you love seventies rock and roll and angst. <laughs> um, yeah. Now it is time to talk about the only movie that I watched this week that's not an angsty romance. Well. The next one is like not really an angsty romance, but it's kind of an angsty romance in a in a funny way. Um There is a line in Everything Everywhere All at Once that I talked about I believe last week. Um and the line is, yeah, maybe some new discovery will come around that makes us all feel like even smaller pieces of shit. Um I think John Wick chapter four might be that discovery. <laughs> Like, dude, John Wick Chapter Four. Okay, I said I said I thought John Wick Chapter One was good, not great, but good. I said I thought John Wick Chapter Two was was really good and made one better. I said John Wick Chapter Three was great and made one and two better. Wouldn't you know it? John Wick Chapter Four is incredible. And makes chapters 1, 2, and 3 better. Man. Like, just starting off. I think this movie has the most emotional core since the first one. The first one had, like, a very clear... um, He lost his wife. And then the thing that his wife left him was this dog. And then he lost the dog. So you you had a very clear reason and understanding of why John was the way that he was. Um, And you had a very... You wanted to root for him. You wanted to see these guys, you know, 
die. Um, and then John Wick chapter 2 and 2 and 3 become much more about the plot. They become much more about the world. And I like that. That's awesome. That works. The world is one of the best parts of this franchise. Um, and th- that's why they're doing a ballerina spinoff and a spinoff about the Continental. Um, but but it 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 become it became much more about the world and the plot and the lore and the action than it was about the actual emotional resonance and John as a character. This one is much more about like it like John actually has like an emotional weight to him in this one. Um, John Wick has an emotional weight to him in this movie. Um, yeah, a friend asked me. I was talking about this. Uh, I was talking about it later. I was talking about it to a friend, and he asked me if it was if I thought it was the greatest film of all time or the greatest action film of all time. Um, and I believe, you know, I maybe maybe he was being coy because I'm so prone to hyperbole lately. Um, but I said yes, <laughs> and I kind of stand by that, like. This movie is three hours. This movie is three hours long. And you don't feel the runtime at all. Because, like, it, it it feels like each hour, like, each... Like, John gets several different tasks in this movie that he has to do, and they lead to incredible action scenes. But each one of them brings world-building, character development for one of the characters, whether that's John, or Winston, or the Mr. Nobody or uh, like like character development for one of the characters um, brings world building, character development and then you also get in every single hour a, a, a contender for the greatest action scene sequence of all time. Um, it's actually unreal. Like there there's a scene I like I I, I was already on board with this is probably the greatest action sequence of all time with the first hour. Like, you could release the first hour and it's maybe the greatest action film of all time. You could take the second hour and just release the second hour and it's maybe the greatest action film of all time. You could release the last hour, just the last hour, and it's maybe the greatest action film of all time. You have all three together and it's it's just, it's insane. It's incredible. Um... Also, the first three movies take place over about a week. Um, they they it feels like this one continuous saga. Um, this film takes place about six months later, and this film feels like a whole nother saga in and of itself. Cause you cause it's globe trotting, which they kind of started doing in three, but you see so much of the like the Earth. They go to like they go from like the desert to Japan to Paris to New York. Um, yeah, that, like, this, it's so awesome, and, and, and the John Wick franchise has never been precious about, uh, about its characters. Things can have, its characters or its world, things can happen at any moment. So, like, there's a, there's a pretty, there's an important death about ten minutes into this movie. Um, yeah, um... Like it's it's awesome. Also, I haven't even talked about Donnie Yen, man. Donnie Yen as Kane. He brings a completely different physicality that I don't think I've ever seen in a in an action movie. Um, 
I talk, I've talked about Letterboxd does the Oscars, our little mock Oscar thing that we do every year. Um, I hope... I hope that by the end of this year, we are still talking about Donnie Yen for Best Supporting Actor. Um, it's such a it's such a fascinating performance with such a fascinating character because he's the lead antagonist, but he doesn't want to kill John. He and he has like an emotional. There's a, he has a reason that he's doing these things, and that makes you root for him too. Because you don't, I mean, you don't want his, you don't want him to lose what he has at stake either. Um, and then, I mean, there, like, the first hour, there's an action sequence that's incredible. Um, it's in the Osaka Continental. And there, there's a couple, like, there's actually a straight-up sword fight. There's a straight-up sword fight in this movie. Two characters with swords, step, like, clashing the swords like it's freaking lightsabers. Um, I can't wait for the edit where somebody makes that, where somebody actually edits lightsabers over their swords. That's gonna be awesome. Um, but yeah, like there's a light, there's a sword fight in this movie that's awesome. Um, and then in the second hour, there's another fight that's awesome. Can differ one of the greatest action sequences of all time. And then in and then the last like 45 minutes of this movie is like four action sequences, each of which is better than the last and is probably the greatest action sequence of all time. There is an action sequence in this movie where it starts on the ground level um, with John coming upstairs, and then it goes, and then it zooms out and goes into like a top-down view, looking down over the room, and it tracks John through this building for like a minute and a half, and he has like, and he has a dragon's breath shotgun, which is like a shotgun that's incendiary that catches people on fire. Um, and it tracks him for like an, a minute and a half. I damn near burst into tears, genuinely, because I was like, "How did they do this?" It got me excited about filmmaking. Like, how did they do this? How did they do this scene? How did how do you have a minute and a half shot where character where actual stunt guys are getting lit on fire? And then just laying there. And they're not getting extinguished. Like they would lay there. And the camera would like pan away from them. And then John would come back into the room. That they would in, and they that they were in. And they would still be laying on the ground on fire. Um, it's so, it, like it's so incredible. Um, there's an action sequence. In the big roundabout in Paris. Um, once again. One of the greatest action sequences of all time. It's amazing. Uh, it got it's that one gets a tiny bit repetitive, but it's so cool, and you're spending so much time trying to figure out how they did it that the fact that it's a tiny bit repetitive doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, this I'm I'm genuinely. Uh, oh my god, I love it so much. I love it so freaking much. I love it so much. Um, and then the ending, which I will not. I don't want to spoil the ending. But it's so awesome. It's so cool, and it's very—it's definitive. And uh, the one thing I will say about John Wick is you kind of have to suspend your disbelief because John takes so much abuse in this movie. Like he gets thrown out of a building, he gets hit by cars like six or seven times, he gets shot—I don't know how many times. Um, so, I mean, you kind of have to suspend your disbelief, 
but if you can accept that, it's the greatest thing ever. It's the greatest thing ever. Like, oh my god, dude, it's the greatest thing ever. Also, I feel like I haven't talked at all about Lawrence Fishburne as the Bowery King, and he's not even in this movie that much, but you can just tell Lawrence Fishburne is having such a great time as that character. He gets to yell, and his voice is booming, and he's, like, very clearly crazy. Um, yeah, Lawrence Fishburne as the Bowery King is awesome. Everything about these movies is awesome, dude. John Wick, the John Wick franchise... Now, this is the first John Wick movie that I've given five stars. We'll probably... We'll, I, I can basically guarantee it's going to be in my top ten of the year. If I give ten movies five... If I give more than ten movies five stars this year... That's an incredible year for movies, and I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I think I gave six or seven five-star ratings last year. Um, so, like, I can guarantee you this movie's going to be in my top ten by the end of the year. Um, so, like, and I think this is very clearly the best in the franchise to me. Um, but, yeah, this is, it's so brilliant. It's so good. Go see it. Go see it. Please go see it. Please go see it. Please go see it. Please go see it. Um, I cannot wait to spend more time in this world. I love this movie a great deal. It's it's the it's maybe the greatest action film of all time. Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing, and you should see it. And I love it very much. Um, that's my take on John Wick Chapter Four. Um, yeah. All right, uh, we're back to angsty romance with Fight Club. <laughs> I don't know if Fight Club is actually angsty romance. I just really wanted to say that. You know, it kind of is. It's romance with yourself. Um, that's a spoiler. Um, but yeah, I finally saw Fight Club, y'all. Fight Club is awesome. Um, but it, but there's so much to unpack. Like I almost feel like I don't have I don't have enough to say right now because I've only seen it the one time. Um, because there's so many different ways you could read it. You could read it as being a movie about the way men are oppressed and suppressed within society. You could read it as a critique of people who say men are oppressed or repressed in society. Um, you could read it as the, the, the fact that men don't have valuable ways of addressing their mental health. You could read it as men don't have as... You could read it as, like, capitalism has destroyed... Capitalism is the reason masculinity is so terrible. Um, yeah, You could read it as so many different things. And that's so compelling. Um, my favorite... I don't know, I don't know. Dude, also, just, like, randomly, I didn't realize Helena Bonham Carter was in this movie. I love Helena Bonham Carter. I would marry Helena Bonham Carter. I would marry many, 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 many different women, as you can tell. <laughs> um, but yeah, I didn't realize Helena Bonham Carter is in this movie. She's in this movie, and it's awesome. Um, I was not expecting the sense of humor that this movie has. The man boobs. I was not expecting that at all. Um, like, like I was, I was not expecting this movie to be as entertaining as it is I was expecting it to be very like I don't know I was I was expecting it to be very like dramatic and Oscar bait 
Oscar Beatty, which says something interesting about the current state of prestige film, I think. Um, the way it used to be with, like, Forrest Gump, Forrest, Forrest Gump is a, uh, like, a massive Oscar winner, it was an absolutely, it was the biggest drama of that year, but it was also a crowd pleaser and made a whole bunch of money, and people loved it. Um, whereas now, uh, everything everywhere all at once in Coda notwithstanding, a bunch of the movies that are getting nominated for Best Picture are very hard to watch, very serious, very self-important dramas. And I'm not even bad-mouthing those. I love those movies. I like. Last year was full of movies like that, like Banshees of Inisherin, a very serious movie that I loved so much. Um, but yeah. I think I think Fight Club is very is a very interesting representation. Although I didn't actually check, I don't know if this, I don't know how this did at the Oscars, but it's considered a classic now. It's considered one of the greatest films of all time now. So, I automatically like it's a it's an interesting observation to make. Um, uh, I think I like Edward Norton. I feel like I feel like we don't see enough Ed Norton. Uh, in the world today, I love Brad Pitt. I was like, Brad Pitt's awesome. Um, I, yeah, this movie's just really good. It's it's really interesting the way it handles like the the fact that ideal the spread of ideology and the spread of like information and the like the fact that the way men hand the way men have kind of been forced by society to handle stress and their own stuff, their own mental health is is really interesting. Um yeah, I don't I I I need to see it like three or four more times before I have like a really clear read on it. But I really really liked this movie. I like I thought it was really really good. Fun to watch, funny, but also like extremely intellectually stimulating. I cannot stop thinking about it. Um yeah. I want to join Fight Club. No, I don't want to join Fight Club. Men will literally join Fight Club instead of go to therapy. Go to therapy. Don't join Fight Club. Go to therapy. <laughs> but yeah, like like yeah, it's really it's really interesting. It's really it's really good, dude. I'm glad I'm glad so many people have recommended it to me. Um yeah, I cannot wait. Eventually, I'm going to have some people on the show to talk about movies like Fight Club cuz I gotta figure that out at some point, cause I don't. I this is one of those movies that I almost can't talk about in a vacuum. I almost can't just talk about it to myself, cause I, I I don't get it enough, honestly. Like I don't get enough. Like like I don't really know what happened in the ending. Uh, what at the end was he after he shoots himself? Was he Tyler Jordan or was he the Ed Norton character? Like so I don't I don't know. Was he both? I don't know. That that's 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 another thing to think about. Um, but yeah, this I dude, I cannot wait. This is it's in my repertoire now. It's a thing that I know now. I can I can talk about it now, and I can't wait to watch more of it. Um, I can't wait to watch it again. I don't know when I'm gonna watch it again, but I can't wait to watch it again. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm very excited. Uh, I'm very excited about the fact that I've now seen Fight Club. Uh, although, 
I did just break the first rule of Fight Club. And the second rule of Fight Club. Because I talked about Fight Club. So. Why are there people entering my room right now? I'm uh, uh, ah! ah! That was a joke. That was a bad joke. Uh, <laughs> sorry, y'all. I've been doing this for too long. I'm kind of tired. But I got one more movie to talk about. So. Um, let's talk about that one more movie. I'm, yeah, let's do it. Okay, so the last film that I watched this week is, like, completely random, because I watched, it was like, I was just sitting around the house yesterday with my dad, and he put this random movie on called Our Souls at Night. It is about these these two older, elderly neighbors, played by Robert Redford and Jane Fonda, um, who are both, like, the actors are both, like, pushing 90. I think, I think, I think Robert Redford is not quite 90, but I think Jane Fonda is 90. Um, and Jane Fonda's character decides, it just comes over to Robert Redford's character's house one day and says, would you like to start sleeping together? Not necessarily, like, having sex, but just spending the night together because I think we're both lonely and I want to, you know it might help both of us get through the night a little bit easier. Um, and that's, the, I mean, that's the premise of the movie, and then it kind of carries on, and these two kind of become life partners for a little bit. Um, this movie's really interesting, because I think, I think especially in the first half, the dialogue and the performances are extremely stiff. Like, nobody talks like this. Um, and, and I think, I think, I think, I think the stiff performances have to do more with the director because, like, you're talking about a couple of legends. You're talking about Robert Redford and Jane Fonda. Um, they don't, they, they, they have not stiff performances. They have performances that are not stiff. So, I would assume the, the, that problem comes from the director. Um, yeah, so, so we have... It's a little bit like boring for the first like twenty or thirty minutes, and then they start like talking more about. They start as they're like sharing these nights. They start talking more about their past and what the movie's kind of about. Kind of becomes more clear. Um, so like this is not. I don't want to oversell it. This is not the greatest movie of all time. It's very. It's extremely slow for being like eighty-five minutes long, um, and and yeah. But I did think it was really. By the end of it, I would be lying if I said I wasn't like a tiny bit impacted, a tiny bit affected, because um, the movie's kind of at its core about reaching kind of the end of your life, what you think is the end of your life. And looking back and having all these regrets and having made mistakes, um, it's another angsty romance. It's another movie about broken people coming together to try and heal their brokenness. Um, but it's it's looking back on a life and real and looking at all these mistakes that you that you've made and um, a realizing that those mistakes weren't the end of the world. And you're still alive. You're at. You might be at the end of your life, but you're still alive. You still have the opportunity to mend those mistakes, to do better next time. Um, 
Yeah, so both of these characters tell a story about, like, about their past at some point in the first, like, 45 minutes. And then that story comes back as a part of their resolution by the end of the film, which is just a really cool little piece of screenwriting and, like, plotting. Because it's, it's, not, it's not exactly, like... Um, like, it's like fate that they get given a... It's not like... They don't really make a choice that gives them a second chance to fix these regrets. It's it's almost more like fate gives them a second chance to, to heal their regrets and heal their brokenness. Um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting, and it's a film about, like, the need for a deep connection at all points in life. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's not... Like, it's not the most powerful romance of all time. The performance, none of their performances are, like, incredible or anything. I was really surprised that this movie didn't premiere at Sundance, to be honest. Because, I mean, this movie came out in, like, 2017. I didn't go to Sundance in 2017. But it premiered at Venice. Um, but I was surprised that it didn't premiere at Sundance because the founder of the Sundance Film Festival is Robert Redford. <laughs> um, all three movies that I watched at Sundance this year had, uh, introductions or like it was the same introduction and it but it was an introduction to the Sundance Film Festival narrated by Robert Redford um I love Robert Redford man um Jane Fonda's really good too also Judy Greer is in this movie and Judy Greer was the voice of Karen in the audiobook of Daisy Jones and the Six um so yeah I just absolutely could not escape Daisy Jones and the Six this week (laughs) um so, which I mean, uh, speaking of, uh, as as the movie was kind of coming to a close, I was like, "Wow, this is like Daisy Jones and the Six for old people." And then the credits rolled, and it's written by the guy who wrote the miniseries, because of course it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it's good. I would say I would if if you have grandparents who are not like these happy-go-lucky people. Um, this is a recommendation for them. <laughs> if you have grandparents who were like a little bit sad, this is a good this is a good movie to watch with your grandparents. If you want to have like a really really deep conversation about life and regret and yeah. Yeah, so like I don't know, it's good. It's not great. It's not amazing, but it's good. Uh yeah, I don't know. I it's not like a hard recommendation. I just barely was positive on it. Um, I gave it three and a half, and three and a half versus three stars is my line. Three stars is not a good movie. Three and a half is a good movie. Um, so yeah, uh, that that's kind of my take on it. It's good, especially by the end, especially the last like twenty or thirty minutes is really sweet. Um, but 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 it's not like the greatest thing ever. It's it's just a really really solid little movie, and I would recommend watching it with your grandparents if you want to be sad and talk to your grandparents about life and regret and sadness um but yeah it's good um that's my take on it uh it's on netflix yeah and with that we have come to the end of another week i want to thank you so much for listening go ahead and do all of the wonderful podcast things go ahead and follow and leave a rating and um, to all of to the couple of people who have like actually commented, I want to say thank you, 
because there have been a couple people that have apparently discovered the show that have cut that have discovered the show on their own, not through anything, not through like not through like mutual friends. I don't think. I'm I don't know, but um, yeah, I want to thank you for that. Um, yeah, this was a weird week, full of like angst and way too much TV. Um, yeah, I would I would say uh, that's all I have to say about this week. And I don't know what I'm gonna watch this. Week. I mean, D and the D and D movie comes out this week, and I'm very very excited for that. Um, and then in April, I think I want to do like a sci-fi deep dive. I want to do a full Star Wars rewatch. Um, and then maybe I've never seen the original Alien. Maybe watch Alien and Aliens. Um, maybe do maybe do some of that in April. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I got going on. Um, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you or talk to you next week. Thank you very much. Bye bye.